Turn with me in your confession to chapter 5 of divine providence. Of divine providence. When we consider God and his glory and his sovereignty over all the nations, we have the comfort from scriptures to encourage us that God is over all these things, even the machinations and vileness and the wickedness of men. Now, having said that, it is difficult for any creature or any finite to have all of the answers. So certainly as we read a, a carefully worded chapter like chapter 5 in our confession, know that there's still going to be questions. There's still going to be things that we wrestle with. There's still going to be things that perhaps perplex us. I remember many years ago, we had a presentation from the then sort of head of Voice of the Martyrs, and he gave a good illustration. He says, you know, when you look at a, when you look at a puzzle or you put together a puzzle. You know, we, we often see a puzzle and some of the pieces are missing, and that's kind of how we interpret the world around us. We need to understand God knows all the puzzle pieces. God is over all things. Whatever comes to pass has been ordained by our God and will ultimately redound to his praise and glory and for the good of those who love him and those who are the called according to his purposes. Now, we might say, well, how does this particular situation in this country work out for good? Again, that's a puzzle piece that you and I don't have. Romans 8.28 assumes that. God causes all things to work for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. So just because we don't perhaps see it doesn't mean it isn't something that will ultimately redound to his glory. So chapter 5, I'll begin reading in paragraph 1. We'll read to the end of the chapter and then look at it in some detail. So God, the good creator of all things in his infinite power and wisdom, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures and things from the greatest even to the least by his most wise and holy providence to the end for the which they were created according unto, or according unto his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, infinite goodness, and mercy. Although in relation to the foreknowledge and decree of God, the first cause, all things come to pass immutably and infallibly, so that there is not anything befalls any by chance or without his providence. Yet by the same providence he ordereth them to fall out according to the nature of second causes, either necessarily, freely, or contingently. God, in his ordinary providence, maketh use of means, yet is free to work without, above, and against them at his pleasure." The almighty power, unsearchable wisdom, and infinite goodness of God so far manifest themselves in his providence that his determinate counsel extendeth itself even to the first fall, and all other sinful actions both of angels and men. And that not by a bare permission, which also he most wisely and powerfully boundeth, and otherwise ordereth and governeth, in a manifold dispensation to his most holy ends." Yet so, as the sinfulness of their acts proceeded, proceedeth only from the creatures and not from God, who, being most holy and righteous, neither is nor can be the author or approver of sin. The most wise, righteous, and gracious God doth oftentimes leave for a season his own children to manifold temptations and the corruptions of their own hearts to chastise them for their former sins, or to discover unto them the hidden strength of corruption and deceitfulness of their hearts, that they may be humbled, and to raise them to a more close and constant dependence for their support upon himself, and to make them more watchful against all future occasions of sin and for other just and holy ends, so that whatsoever befalls any of his elect is by his appointment for his glory and their good." 
As for those wicked and ungodly men, whom God, as a righteous judge, for former sin doth blind and harden, from them he not only withholdeth his grace, whereby they might have been enlightened in their understanding and wrought upon in their hearts, but sometimes also withdraweth the gifts which they had and exposeth them to such objects as their corruption makes occasion for, of sin, and withal gives them over to their own lusts, the temptations of the world and the power of Satan, whereby it comes to pass that they harden themselves even under those means which God useth for the softening of others." As the providence of God doth in general reach to all creatures, so after a most special manner it taketh care of his church and disposeth of all things to the good thereof. Amen. Well, Sam Waldron makes the observation in his exposition of the confession, the doctrine of providence as unfolded in this chapter is closely related to and rooted in the doctrine of the decree found in chapter 3. The decree is the blueprint or plan. Providence carries out the blueprint or plan by guiding the actual course of history. The decree takes place in eternity. Providence takes place in history. I think that's an accurate assessment in terms of the connection and the confession. Again, back to chapter 3 of God's decree. We note that God work, or, uh, uh, has purposed all things whatsoever to come to pass. The uh, Westminster Shorter Catechism asks, how does God execute his decree? Well, God execute his, executes his decree in the works of creation and providence. So chapter 3 is eternal in purpose and plan. Chapter 4, how that's expressed in, ter in terms of creation. And chapter 5, how that's expressed in terms of providence. How God works all things according to the counsel of his own will. Well, as we often see in the confession, you have a general statement in paragraph 1, and then you have various means of explanation in the following paragraphs. So we'll look at the doctrine stated in paragraph 1, and then secondly, the doctrine explained in paragraphs 2 to 7. So notice, first of all, with reference to the author of providence, and I like the way it starts, God the good creator of all things. I think the confession starts with that sort of axiomatic principle that God is in fact good. In other words, the doctrine of providence isn't Islamic fate. It isn't blind chance. It's not some sort of rapid or, or, or random happenings in the universe, but rather all that we see take place comes from the hand of God, the good creator. So whatever chapter 2 in the Confession says, specifically in paragraphs 1 and 2, concerning God's divine perfections, we mustn't ever forget that when we survey this world and the various godless acts that continue on in it unabated, nevertheless, God is over all things and he's working all things to accomplish his purpose and his will. I've already referred to Romans 8. I think Paul makes that axiomatic claim there. We know that God causes all all things to work together for good. We go back to uh, Psalm 73. And interestingly, Psalm 73 is the account of Asaph when he had surveyed the world around him and how it brought perplexity to his soul. He saw the righteous suffer and he saw the unrighteous prosper. He saw the righteous in great straits of affliction, but he sees the godless enjoying the benefits associated with life in the created world. So he rehearses that for us, and he tells us this. He opens his heart, as it were, to say, but as for me, my, my foot nearly slipped. 
It wasn't until he got a God's eye perspective concerning the, the godlessness that exists that he was able to process this information properly. But even before all that, before he relates to us his personal encounter with the, 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 the things that he reveals in the psalm, he starts off in Psalm 73, 1 this way. A psalm of Asaph, truly God is good to Israel to such as are pure in heart. That again is axiomatic. That is a foundational statement. That is the very uh, uh, ground upon which we then assess the things going on in the world. As I said, this good God has purposes or has his purposes for even the evil that exists. We may not get it. We may be missing that particular puzzle piece. But as we work through the Bible and we see these various things explained, we understand that in fact God does cause all things to work for good. So again, truly God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. And then he says, but as for me, my feet had almost slipped, my steps had nearly, uh, 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 had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He's going to reveal a very difficult uh, trial in his own heart and life with reference to his own theolog uh, theology. But he starts with that axiomatic principle and he ends on that high note of the goodness of God. Specifically in verses 27 and 28. For indeed, those who are far from you shall perish. You have destroyed all those who desert you for harlotry. But it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord that I may declare all your works. So that psalm teaches us that the, the, the Bible's response to the evil that exists isn't, well, you know, that's really not the case. That's just an appearance of what may look like evil. The Bible doesn't just sort of whitewash the reality that this is, in fact, a sin-cursed world and that horrific things often obtain. We only need to look at the factions and the warrings going on in the various nations. We need to look at, only need to look at pedophilia and abortion and euthanasia. There are horrible things that go on in the world. So the Bible doesn't try to gloss that away. Well, you know, that's not the case. No, the Bible tells you that this is in fact a reality. But the Bible brings you to appreciate the fact that God is over even these things and He will work them out for His glory and for the good of those who love Him and those who are the called according to His purpose. So God, the creator of all things, is the author of providence. He is good. And then notice the foundation of providence. So God, the cre good creator of all things, in his infinite power and wisdom. I guess, or I think this gives a check to us as well to engage in what we used to call in the military, probably you called it something that, uh, in, in your workplaces, Monday morning quarterbacking. Something bad happened on the weekend and all the, the big guys come in on a Monday morning and they quarterback the decisions that were made on the weekend. Well, this should prove as a check to our Monday morning quarterbacking to try to, you know, call into question God's dealings, to call into question God's ordering of certain things. Notice that whatever falls out in terms of things in this world, it is according to infinite power and it's according to infinite wisdom. We don't have either. We certainly don't have infinite power and we certainly don't have infinite wisdom. How many times in your own life have you looked at a particular situation and said, I don't know how anything good will come out of this. And then ultimately, somehow, for the glory of God and your own good, good does come out of it. 
So we need to be careful that we don't call into question infinite power and infinite wisdom. And we ought to find the comfort that such a doctrine affords to us. Again, we're not guided by you know, blind faith or impersonal forces in the universe or sort of random and haphazard effects and things. No, God causes all things to work for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. So the author of providence is God the creator, good creator of all things. The foundation of, his, of providence is in His infinite power and wisdom. And then notice the nature of providence. In other words, what is it? It goes on to say, after uh, uh, introducing to us its God, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern notice, not some creatures and things, but all creatures and things, from the greatest even to the least, by his most wise and holy providence, to the end for the which they were created, according unto his infallible foreknowledge, and the free and immutable counsel of his own will, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, infinite goodness, and mercy. So again, this is axiomatic. This is foundational. This is the stuff that we don't negotiate with. This is the stuff that we don't barter with. This is the stuff that we don't look at bad things in the world and then make this judgment, well, well, God maybe isn't what our confession accurately reflecting Scripture says. No, this is foundational. This is the ground upon which we then interpret the happenings going on in the world around us. So notice in terms of the characteristics of providence, he upholds, he directs, he disposes, and he governs. If you're in the Psalms, turn to Psalm 115. Psalm 115, just a quick survey of a few passages that underscore that the divines are not making this up, that they are accurately reflecting or accurately, accurately revealing to us what Scripture says concerning our God relative to His upholding, directing, disposing, and governing all things. Not some things, but all creatures and things. Notice in Psalm 115.3, and I hope you say, well, I've seen these passages before. Good. These are passages you should have seen before, and these are passages that you should see again, and they are passages that you should see again and again. Because when the difficulties come, we need to be reminded of these axiomatic principles. Notice in 115.3, but our God is in heaven. He does whatever He pleases. The same truth is revealed in Psalm 135 and verse 6, but you can turn to the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 46, specifically verses 9 to 11. Isaiah chapter 46, verses 9 to 11. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. See, again, axiomatic principle, the very God of Scripture, the nature of God. That's why we spend time on chapter 2. Because if you get God right, then all this other stuff makes sense. If you understand who God is, God, the good creator, get that down, and then everything else in the chapter will follow. So notice, verse 9, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from the ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure calling a bird of prey from the east, the man who executes my counsel from a far country. Indeed, I have spoken it. I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I will also do it. Now, the historical situation of this particular statement is the raising up of Cyrus, the king of Persia. 
which interestingly, in the prophet Isaiah, God the Lord refers to Cyrus as Messiah. You'll know the word Messiah. It's the Hebrew equivalent to the Greek Christ, both of which translate anointed one. So how is Cyrus the anointed one? How is Cyrus the Messiah of God in this historical situation? Well, it was Cyrus who had put down the Babylon, uh, the Babylonians. It was Cyrus and Persia that would conquer the Babylonian Empire. That's good news if you were a captive in the Babylonian Empire. That's good news if you were in exile from Judah living in Babylon. You'd certainly look at Cyrus in that manner. He's God's anointed. He's God's Messiah. He's God's champion to break the back of Babylonian oppression so that the Judahites can then return to their land. So he calls this bird of prey from the east, the man who executes my counsel from a far country. And remember, Cyrus, as far as we know, didn't go to Sunday school. He didn't sit under teaching on the 1689 Confession of Faith. As far as we know, he was a, a, a godless man, a wretched man. But in the hand of God Most High, he takes this crooked thing and makes a, 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 a straight thing out of it. He takes this Messiah, sends him on the world stage to conquer and vanquish the Babylonian uh, uh, oppressors so that Judah can then return to her land. So God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. And sometimes that means raising up a pagan to judge a bunch of other pagans. In fact, it was Cyrus and the, to rebuild the temple. So God raises up godless men to do his work. Turn to one other place in the Old Testament. And again, this is not confined. This isn't one of the, this isn't preacher talk. Well, you know, the, the, there's not many, or the, the, there's so many more. There really is many, many more. That's not preacher talk. If you read the book of Genesis to Malachi, you, you can't miss the sovereignty of God. I mean, if you do, you haven't read it properly. I, I mean, I don't want to sound too unkind, but if you come out of you know, a read of not just the Old Testament, but the New Testament, and you miss God's sovereignty, you missed a major theme. You missed a major theme that the Bible sets forth over and over again. Well, look at Nebuchadnezzar. Remember the scene? He was this kind of proud, well, not kind of, he was a proud, arrogant man that was musing upon his kingdom, and look at what I built, look at what I've done, look at all the good that my hand has accomplished. So what does God do? He drives him out into the field, he lives like a beast, and then his reason returns to him. And notice that when his reason returns to him, he celebrates not his own achievements, not his own doings, but the sovereign power of God Most High, infinite power and infinite wisdom. Notice in Daniel 4.34, and at the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to, to heaven, and my understanding returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever and ever, or lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to His will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me and for the glory of my kingdom, my honor and splendor returned to me. My counselors and nobles resorted to me. I was restored to my kingdom and excellent majesty was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all of whose works are truth and his ways justice and those who walk in pride he is able to put down. 
Well, he knew that experientially, didn't he? He goes from, look at what I've built, to dwelling in the, in the fields and living as a beast. It was God's grace that restored him to that place of prestige, and it was God's grace that taught him that it's God and not Nebuchadnezzar that builds world, world powers. It's God that builds. It's God that sustains, and it's also God that ultimately collapses them. Turn over to the book of Acts, some New Testament documentation with reference to the same truth. God is not an innocent bystander hoping that the creation that he created kind of works itself out. He's not on the, you know, the fray chewing on his divine fingernails with knees knocking, hoping that things work out upon the world stage. Paul at the Areopagus or Mars Hill, when he preaches to the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, remember they had an idolatry problem in Athens. So what does Paul preach? Paul preaches the true and living God. That's the best corrective to an idolatry problem. It's the true and living God. In fact, you can see the idolatry problem in Acts 17, 16. Now, while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him. This is a paroxysm. His spirit is provoked. And then notice when he saw that the city was given over to idols. For Paul, it was the first and second commandment that affected him when he was standing in Athens. And again, we ought to be offended by the breach of the sixth commandment vis-a-vis -vis abortion, vis-a-vis -vis maid, vis-a-vis -vis pedophilia, and all the sorts of things we see that are a breach of the second table of the law. But we also need to remember that when we see man who acts like that with aggression towards his fellows, there's typically a theological reason. When you dis uh, uh, when you reject the true and living God, then pretty much anything and everything goes in society. In fact, the best corrective to second table breaches is the proclamation of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, we preach the law, you shall not murder. We preach the law, you shall not commit adultery. But let us never neglect the preaching of the gospel, which changes a man from within by the power of God's Holy Spirit, so that now he wants to comply with the second table. Now he wants to preserve and promote life. Now he wants to preserve and promote childhood development instead of mutilation. He wants to do what God calls him to do. So in our, our haste and our zeal to condemn the lawlessness of our own generation, let us not do so at the, expect of pre at the exception of preaching Christ and Him crucified. That's what the church brings to the table. That's what the church brings to this situation. It is the reality that in Jesus Christ there is forgiveness and there is a righteousness that avails with God. So Paul now addressing these Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, notice verse 24, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything. This idea of being worshipped with men's hands picks up a convention used in the Old Testament. It's basically theological shorthand for idolatry. The works of men's hands relative to religious worship is idolatry. And so Paul is condemning their idolatry.
So God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth, and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Paul now cites one of their own pagan poets, for in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. So the apostle is setting forth the supremacy of the God of heaven and earth. That's the best corrective to idolatry that man uh, uh, engages in. And then Ephesians 1.11, it somewhat corresponds with what we see in Isaiah 46. Here specifically, with I think a, a spiritual application, but certainly the spiritual is in many respects a subset of the general. The fact that God has all authority, that God does uphold, that God does direct, that God does dispose, that God does govern, provides that general framework and context for the blessing of special grace in the salvation of needy sinners. So notice in Ephesians 1.11, in him also... We have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So again, there's no wiggle room there. Well, is God really in control of all things? Yes, God really is in control of all things. Well, it doesn't make sense to me. If he's in control of all things, how come all these bad things happen? Again, these are puzzle pieces that are absent to us, but they're not absent to God. God has his purposes. God is the good creator. Truly, God is good to Israel. God does cause all things to work together for good. So the confession, I think, does a wonderful thing in attaching this explanation of providence to the God of providence. So we've got its characteristics. He upholds, he directs, he disposes, and he governs. But then notice its scope, all creatures and things, from the greatest even to the least. That's a comprehensive scope. It's not that God's just got the church. God's just got the Christians. God's just got the believers. Insofar as they're singing and they're praying and they're, you know, listening to the scripture, you know, that, that, that's great. But, you know, what happens in, in Israel? What happens in, in Myanmar? What happens over there? You know, that's not, that's not God's purview. You know, he's got the church, he's got the spiritual, you know, beyond that, you know, the world is just this random haphazard, you know, effect of molecules bouncing off of one another. No, that's not what the confession says. All creatures and things, from the greatest even to the least. Now, the whole system in general, we just saw that there in Ephesians 1.11. But as well, the fortuitous events in the world. What do I mean by fortuitous events? Well, what, what seems to be chance happenings, what, what seems to be, you know, random occurrences, the, the, the long red light, the, the red lights there over the overpass. You get the green one and then, what, 25, you know, feet away, you hit the red one? Like, can't you just sink these to be green, both of them? That's not random. It's not haphazard. God... Go, uh, uh, governs all his creatures and, and all their actions. Let's look at the fortuitous events of men. Turn to the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 16, specifically verse 33. 
the lot, or we might in modern parlance say the dice, we're a little bit more familiar with throwing dice, right? You're looking for seven, you don't want snake eyes, you roll those dice and, and you want what you want to come up. Well, certainly God's not in control of that. Come on, a die, you know, a two or a seven, that, that, that can't be in the hand of God or two or six. Dice don't go to seven. It can't be in the hand of God. That would really be interesting if you rolled a seven with one die. Uh, anyways, uh, what we have here is notice in verse 33, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. It's every decision is from the Lord. That's not, you know, preacher talk. That's not just trying to bring a bit of comfort to you when you're having these perplexing situations. That's reality. Based on the passages that we just read, you can't escape this conclusion. You can't escape this inference or, or implication. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Turn over to the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, specifically chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10, specifically verses 29 and 30. I think this was, I've never seen it, I've never read this, but apparently in the medieval church they'd ask questions like, how many angels can fit on the head of a pin? And there were others that in the early church that said, you know, God really doesn't concern himself with cockroaches. He, he's not really, you know, I've, I've read there's an outbreak of bed bugs in Paris. Boy, wouldn't you like to go visit there? Absolutely not. I mean, you know, we have this idea that I think it was Jerome. Does God's not really concerned about the minutia in the created order. Well, that's not what the confession says. And brethren, that's not what the Bible says. He governs all creatures and things. Look at Matthew 10, 29. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin and not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will? The, the most, one of the most insignif insignificant and, and, you know, popular, you know, the, the most multitude of birds, if one falls, it doesn't fall because your kid shot it with a BB gun. I mean, that might be the secondary cause, but it was God who caused that bird to fall. And then notice in verse 30, but the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Man, we're not supposed to suppose that God, you know, today he's going to go through A to L, tomorrow M through Z, and he's going to count the hairs on the head of all his creatures. He knows this. He's, he's an omniscient being. He knows all things that, that are to be known. So, so God governs all his creatures and all their actions, the whole system in general, the fortuitous events in the world, and then the free actions of men. Go back to the book of Proverbs. The free actions of men. This is one of the challenges that the doctrine of providence brings, and this is what uh, paragraph 2 will go on to describe. How does it work with God absolutely sovereign and man the creature who does what it looks like to be whatever he wants to do? How do these things jive? God's absolutely sovereign. Man has free will. We need to condition free will or qualify free will, will respective of where man is in terms of, uh, of history, whether at the state of creation, whether in the state of sin, whether in the state of redemption, or whether in the state of, state of glory. But suffice to say, in the state of sin, man has free will. The man goes out today and he gets hammered with lots of alcohol and he drives his car into the city center and he runs somebody over. He, he does that. 
when, when there's various things that happen. I, you know, nobody's got a, God doesn't, you know, twist your arm to go out and commit acts of evil. So, so how do we understand this? How do these things work? The first cause and the second cause. Well, God's orchestrated in such a way that the first cause is foundational for everything that obtains. The second causes are necessary in the sense to accomplish those things. And they work in union with one another. The man that does wickedness does wickedness because he chooses to do it. God uses it to accomplish His purposes because that's how He has established His decree. So notice in Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, He turns it wherever He wishes. Now, brethren, we usually would interpret that and we pray, or at least I do, God take the heart of you know, Justin Trudeau who acts like a king and turn it in a manner consistent with your revealed will. I think that's a legitimate prayer. But I think it's also a legitimate conclusion to understand that Justin's heart is in the hand of God even right now. And that whatever happens ultimately is according to God's purpose and plan and decree. And again, puzzle pieces that are missing and the way that we're not supposed to respond is, well, if this is the will of God, then we're going to just succumb and do all that. No, 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 no. First cause, second cause. There are secret things that belong to our Lord our God, and there are revealed things that are to inform our conduct presently. Notice as well, we've got Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, in the context of redemption, and in the context of our good works, the things that you and I choose to do that are consistent with our salvation by grace through faith in Jesus, who gets the credit ultimately for that? It's not us. Did you just wake up one day and say, you know, I'm going to go out and ameliorate the cause of the downtrodden and poor. You did that because God saved you. You did that because God gave you a new heart. You did that because the Holy Spirit is at work in you. And that's Paul's point in verse 10. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus, what? For, for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And then turn over to Philippians 2. So God's Providence extends to the whole system in general, the fortuitous events in the world, the free actions of men. One more passage here in 2.13, and then we'll finish with the sinful actions of men. But notice in 2.13, well, 2.12, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why? For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Notice he doesn't say work for your salvation. He doesn't say work to attain this state of being saved. No, Paul says you're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Now that you're a recipient of that great salvation, work it out in your life. What does that mean? You're now justified freely by God's grace. You now have the Holy Spirit indwelling you. You now have this desire to do good things. Go out and do that. But again... The credit, the glory, the honor, the praise, and the power goes to God. Verse 13, for it is God who works in you. Notice, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in that. So the whole system in general, the fortuitous events in the world, the free actions of men, and then fourthly in terms of scope, the sinful actions of men. Now admittedly, this is where it gets a bit more difficult, but the Bible gives us guidance. The Bible gives us help. Turn back to the book of Genesis. 
Genesis chapter 50. Again, I hope all are familiar passages. Oh, it's good. Hopefully it's not, oh man, I can't believe we're going through this again. Hopefully it's more of a, boy, it's good to be reminded of this again. Whenever I wake up and I see some new weird thing going on in the world, it's good to be reminded, or some you know, wicked thing going on in the world, it's good to be reminded who's ultimately in charge. You remember the story of Joseph. I mean, you think you've got problems in your family life? I mean, come on. <laughs> Talk about a, a, a bad family situation. The father favors him. It, it, it outrages the brothers. So, of course, what do the brothers do? Well, let's kill him. One of the brothers intervenes. Well, let's not kill him. Let's, let's sell him into slavery. Brethren, in the grand scheme of things, you know, what would you prefer? Get death immediately or being sold into slavery? I don't know, I might opt for death immediately considering how people treat slay. I, I don't know, but either way, these are not stellar siblings. These are not brothers of the year. They don't get coffee cups from Joseph at the end of the year saying brother of the year. So, so they do all these horrible things, and of course we see that it's God's purpose and plan. Why is that? Because God takes the brother that's sold into slavery and exalts him. Second in command in Egypt. That's going to be absolutely crucial when this famine comes and when the, the Israelites need food. It's going to be Joseph that, that is in a key position to make sure that the seed uh, of, of Jesus continues. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we've got to further that football down the field in order to bring us to that time when God sent forth his son. And so in order for the Israelites to survive, they need a key figure who's got a good hand on the control of food in this time of famine. So when the brothers finally meet, the brothers finally reconcile, the brothers finally get back to at least some degree of normal, Joseph gives this theology lesson to them. Notice in Genesis 50, verse 19. Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good, in order to bring it about, as it is this day, to save many people alive. Again, brethren, we may not have all the answers in the midst of the situation. Why would his brothers do that? Why would his brothers hurt him? Why would his brothers be so nasty? Why didn't God, you know, kill them when they threw Joseph down the pit and, you know, provide a ladder for Joseph to get up out of that pit? He didn't do that. Why? Because he has his purpose and he has his plan. And as Joseph theologically correctly says, but as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. And then, of course, we have those passages in the book of Acts that highlight one of the most, well, the most sinful criminal act that's ever occurred. The most sinful and criminal act that's ever occurred was the death or the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ. The apostle tells us in Hebrews 7, he was wholly harmless and undefiled. Pontius Pilate understood and confesses three times, I find no guilt in him. I find no guilt in him. I find no guilt in him, he says. You know, Peter, his, one of his closest friends, is able to apply the prophet Isaiah to him. He had no guile, no deceit in his mouth. He committed no sin. The closer you are to people, the more you see their sins, right? It's just the way it is. I mean, I see my beloved's. No, she's pretty much perfect. No, I'm kidding. She certainly sees mine. Familiarity evidences the sinfulness that we carry in our bosom. And yet, Peter's with Jesus for three years and is able to say, who committed no sin. 
So the death or crucifixion of Jesus was the most horrific act in terms of criminal behavior that has ever taken place. Pastor Naphtali preached last Sunday from Acts 2, specifically verses 22 and 23. I mean, he did more, but I just want to read that. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. So on the one hand, God governed uphold, uh, upheld, ruled, disposed, all of this. But notice it doesn't mitigate the guilt of the lawless hands. You see, both things are taught. God is absolutely, positively, 100% sovereign. But as well, man is responsible. Man is culpable for his conduct and for his actions and for his lawless behavior before this holy God. So it's not a, we have to get rid of one or the other. There have been those attempts in theology. Well, we really can't deal with a sovereign God and the presence of pedophilia in the world. So God must not be sovereign. Or we, we minimize and say, well, you know, these pedophiles are ultimately ordained by the hand. No, 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 no. God is absolutely sovereign. Man is absolutely responsible. And again, our confession goes into explaining as best as they can that reality in Scripture. And as I mentioned at the outset of the, the study today, it may not be that every single I gets dotted in your mind or every single T gets crossed in your mind, but realize that the God of absolute glory and sovereignty is the God who, even though there are wicked things that obtain in this creation, overrules those things for his glory and for our good. So verse 23, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. The most heinous and criminal act that has ever occurred was overruled by God to bring about great good. Without that death, there is no remission. Without the bloodshed of the Lord Jesus, there is no salvation. So that godless, wicked act is overruled by our good God for the salvation of a multitude that no man can number. The apostolic prayer meeting, they make the same statement over in Acts 4, specifically at verses 27 and 28. For truly, against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together, notice, to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. So whenever we think, you know, I'm just trying to do a good thing, I'm just trying to be a good guy or a good girl, I can't believe these horrible things are happening to me. Brethren, come back to Scripture and focus upon the reality that the, the, the Savior of sinners was ordained by God to go to the cross for us men and for our salvation. So the scope of divine providence is the whole system in general, the fortuitous events in the world, the free actions of men, and the sinful actions of men. But notice in terms of the confessional statement, it has a particular purpose. Notice. From the greatest even to the least, by his most wise and holy providence, notice, to the end for which they were created. To the end for which they were created. In other words, God has a purpose for the things that he has made. God has his purposes for mosquitoes and flies and bed bugs. It's not just to make people in Paris upset. God has his purposes for this created order. 
We may not be able to understand all those things, but again, God does, and He will accomplish His plan and purpose for His people, for His glory, and for the manifestation of His praise and glory. So notice, the confession moves from scope now to the determining causes with reference to this uh, uh, providence. Notice, according unto his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will. So this is, I think I've mentioned before, sometimes the, the, the question of the atonement comes up. Was it a necessity? Was it a necessity that the only way for salvation of guilty sinners was through the death of Jesus? I think some in the history of the church said, no, God's a sovereign being. He could have purposed another way. And then there's those who believe that there is a necessity. Well, yeah, if the infinitely wise God pursued this means, then that means it reflects the infinite wisdom of this God. So it is a necessity that Christ come, that he take on our humanity, that he live for us, that he die for us, and that he be raised again for us. And I think that's what the confession is doing here. After the purpose, the general statement to the end, for the which they were created, according to, unto his infallible foreknowledge. He doesn't mistake. He doesn't error. He doesn't say, well, you know, that caught me off guard. I, I didn't see that coming. We have that experience all the time. I didn't see that coming, right? Probably all of us have said that on many occasions. I, I didn't see that coming. God never says that. He has infallible foreknowledge and then the free and immutable counsel of his own will. This idea of immutability means unchangeable. In other words, what we see happening is happening according to plan. Even the men that govern us, the women that govern us, even the events that continue in the world. But again, brethren, we don't live based on the secret things. We're not supposed to conclude, well, this is obviously the plan and purpose of God, so that's the way it goes. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that He has revealed are for us and our children. And what has He revealed? He has revealed that we pray for kings and authority. Uh, and all who are in authority. We pray for, you know, an end to abortion. We pray for those things that we see are, are horrific on the face of the earth. The things going on in Israel. The things going on in the Ukraine. The things going on in Myanmar. The things that go on all over the earth. We don't live according to the secret things and say, well, you know, this is the plan and purpose of God. Let's just watch as all these people get slaughtered. No, we pray. God, move these, these people in charge. Move these people that are making decisions in the direction of, uh, of righteousness. That's consistent. And the rest of the confession sort of goes in to those particular details. And then notice the last statement in paragraph one. And good news, this is all we're going to do today. We won't get to paragraphs two to seven. But notice, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, infinite goodness, and mercy. I, I, I sometimes think that that's not always a good answer for Christians. You, you, you know, your kids might ask, well, you know, why did, why did God allow? But we don't see just this allowance. If you notice in paragraph four, with reference to the first fall, and that not by a bare permission. It wasn't just bare permission by which Adam and Eve fell. But, but God purposed it. God decreed it, and in providence, it fell out that way. And sometimes kids will say, well, why did Adam and Eve sin? I mean, there's a lot of reasons for that. There's a lot of things that you can offer up by way of an explanation. But what's the ultimate reason? For the manifestation of the perfections of God Almighty. If Adam and Eve hadn't have sinned, there would be no reason for the coming of the second or last Adam. 
If Adam the first had carried out his task according to the, to, to, to the command of God, there'd no, be no need for Adam the last to come and show us the glorious mercy and grace and kindness and goodness of God. So in other words, God has a morally sufficient reason for the evil that exists. And the end of it, as our confession says, is to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, infinite goodness, and mercy. I think it's natural for the people of God to have a desire for justice. I think it is natural for the people of God to have a desire for righteousness. I don't think Asaph is a bad guy in Psalm 73 because he's perplexed when he sees the righteous suffer and he sees the godless abound. I don't think Asaph's a bad guy. I think in many respects that imitates God. God is a God of justice. God is a God of righteousness. I don't think it's wrong for us to consider that in that final day of judgment, I mean, if persons get away with things in the here and now, you and I are convinced and we know from Scripture, they're not going to get away with it into eternity. There is a judgment and a reckoning coming. There is a manifestation at the end of God's wisdom, power, justice, infinite goodness, and mercy. So when we stand before God on that day of judgment, we will extol His mercy. We will revel in His grace. We will delight in and marvel upon the fact that in the fullness of the time God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. But as well, the entirety of creation will rejoice in the righteousness of God, in the justice of God, when He consigns the reprobate and the wicked to hell. Again, it's not necessarily evil to have that desire because we imitate God. We are image bearers of God. Justice and, and righteousness, according to Psalm 89, are the foundation of his throne. Now for us, it may be that day of judgment is going to be the manifestation of that justice. I mean, I think in history, there are times, there are instances, there are occasions when you see God's historical judgments come upon a godless group. You see it with reference to Egypt. You see it with reference to Babylon. You can't read the prophets and you can't read the Psalms without seeing God in history vindicating his covenant people. So we have that assurance but we don't have the promise that it's going to necessarily happen in our lifetime. It's not going to necessarily be the case that all of our answers are, are provided for us on this side of heaven. But that great day will manifest His glorious perfections wherein all of the people of God will marvel at what He's accomplished in terms of His great plan to save His people from their sins by the work of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So paragraph one is most helpful in terms of a good explanation or overarching explanation of the various things concerning divine providence. Perhaps next time we will look at paragraphs two to seven as various things that present various challenges are, are explained in the confession relative to, say, for instance, divine providence and sin. That usually comes up in the lives of God's people. How do we interpret divine providence and the sin of godless people? How do we interpret divine providence and, and our own remaining corruption? Well, the divines took pen to paper and tried to answer those questions in a manner that I think is very biblical and very much representative of a, a, a good exegetical uh, approach to Holy Scripture. Well, I'll pray, and if there's any questions, we can deal with that. Father in heaven.
as we consider just this first paragraph, as we consider the various passages that we've read, we see that you are in fact good. And I pray that we'd always operate in terms of interpreting circumstances with that axiom or that principle. As well, God, help us to appreciate that there are no haphazard events in this world. There's no random occurrences, but you are sovereign over all things. You govern all your creatures and all their actions. And God, may this be a means of encouragement and comfort to the saints of Christ. And may you help us to live in a manner that is consistent with your revealed will as it comes to us in the Holy Scriptures. Again, we pray for these events happening all over the earth. We ask God in heaven that you would give your people grace in the midst of these things to press on, to be steadfast, to shine as lights in a crooked and perverse generation, and give us boldness and courage to hold forth your word of truth. And we pray through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, any questions or comments?